Billy, 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 Hi, it's Alex, and we'd like to come to you with an update on Uno. Cassie has taken the lead. Reigning champion. She's currently at 21 wins. She's kicking ass, and Drew is still, oh, he's still down there. 15, I think. Maybe 14. No, he got to 16. So that's the Uno update. Uh, If you didn't know, we play a whole shitload of Uno. This is Death by Music Podcast. Hi. Yeah, Death by Music Podcast with our host, Alex Rose and Cassie Gardner. I'm Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just sit here and drink margaritas while these ladies do lots of good research. And and occasionally you comment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is absolutely insane to think this is the ninth episode. Holy shit. And I'm really proud of us. So, and thank you to all of you guys who have been listening and supporting us. Make sure that you're following us on our pages because shit, you're on episode nine. What are you doing? You've come this far. Just keep going. So today our topic is... Billy Holiday. I mean, this story is really fucked up. Yeah, there was a lot of information. Yeah, and Cassie really took the lead on this one, so <laughs> she's going to be doing the bulk of the storytelling here, and I've got a few comments kind of at the end. We're going to work through this together, mm-hmm. everybody. We do want to recognize our sources. They did lots of research, and a lot of the information came from biography.com, wikipedia.com, NPR article with Elizabeth Blair, Politico article with... Joanne Hari, The Hunting of Billy Holiday, and Face to Face Africa article by Michael L. Michael Eli DeCosi, How Billy Holiday Was Tormented to Death, Handcuffed to Her Hospital Bed. And then there were a few more. The Atlantic.com had an article uh, called Does Billy Holiday Still Matter? Which is like, Excuse of me, course she does. She's rude. Assholes. <laughs> rude ass. Um, Legacy.com had uh, Billy Holiday, The Tragic Life of Lady Day. USA Today had a story. Then Downbeat.com, let's talk about Billie Holiday. Disclaimer, some of this information may be triggering. Um, There is violence, domestic violence. Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse. So if any of these things may be harmful or triggering to you, uh, maybe skip this episode. Yes, this is your warning. Or, yeah, just warning, it does get a little graphic. Mm -hmm. Do you like jazz? I mean, surely if you've ever dabbled in the genre, you'd have come across... Billie Holiday, almost instantly, she's one of the greatest female jazz singers of all time. She's got a movie dedicated to her. Um, That one is Lady Sings the Blues, starring Diana Ross. Mm. She's got an off-Broadway, then-on-Broadway play uh, called Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. Recounting some of her life events, she's got countless tribute albums dedicated to her timeless music, and her music has stayed the staple in the genre for over 70 years. So her career thrived for many years, too, before she lost her sad battle with addiction. At the beginning, Billie Holiday was born Eleanor Fagan on April 7th, 1915 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She spent a lot of her childhood in Baltimore, Maryland, and her mother, Sadie, was just 19 years old when she gave birth to Billie. Um, Her father is actually allegedly Clarence Holiday, which is where her last name came from. But unfortunately, he isn't in her life as much as, you know, he had abandoned his family to pursue a career as a jazz banjo player and guitarist. I don't know many jazz banjo players, but more power to you. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Apparently, some historians actually have disputed the validity of Holiday's paternity since her birth certificate in the Baltimore archives lists her father as a man named Frank DeVise, who may have been someone her mother knew through work 
Other historians actually consider this probably just a hospital or government filing error. Huh. which happened apparently a lot back then. Billy actually had a really tough time growing up. She had no steady father figure. Her mother was leaving to go work on passenger railroads. She had, like, no consistency mm-hmm. in a family at home. So eventually, Billy was left to be raised by her mother's half-sister's mother-in-law. Yes, I read that correctly. Good. Moving on. I'm not moving on yet because <laughs> I got to think about it for her a second. Her mother's half-sister's mother-in-law. So her half-aunt's... Husband's mom. mom. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. All right. So when your discipline is inconsistent and your parents are absent, you get a kid that has some behavioral issues. Yeah, for it's sure. It's bound to happen. So Billy started skipping school and eventually landing her in Catholic Reform School at just nine years old for truancy. So she was baptized Catholic in 1925 and then released back to her mother. Sadie was starting to get her shit together and opened a restaurant where she and Billy worked long hours, eventually leading to Billy dropping out of school at age 11. It's crazy to me that her mom was just gone, probably dealing with financial troubles too, considering the fact that she had to give up her daughter, um, but she had the funds up front to start a restaurant. Um, I guess that things were different back then, but damn, it seems like a huge financial risk to start a restaurant if you're yeah, not already I'm sure, like the wealthy. Loan, the loan portion of that, yeah, you know, renting like, and just holy shit, having to pay everybody. It's a lot of a bit, running a business is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So back in 1926, Sadie actually walked in on a neighbor trying to rape Billy. Uh, the neighbor oh was later arrested, but for some reason, the incident put Billy back in the custody of the reform school until she was 12 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah, like kids don't get raped in the care of Catholics. Oh, jeez. Jesus. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, no, you're not wrong. Historically yeah. accurate. Billy found a job at age 12. So she's now like running errands in a brothel and scrubbing the floors of neighborhood homes. Hmm. This is when she starts hearing Louis Armstrong and Bessie Smith records for the first time, and she's like hooked. So I did some research on fair labor laws because I was oh. like, holy shit, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> um, they weren't in place until 1938. Okay. The laws that were put in place then raised the working age to 14 years old for non-agricultural jobs. And if you were 14 to 16 years old, you could work limited hours, while 16 to 17 years old could work unlimited hours for non-hazardous jobs. So they basically said, like, unless you're working on a farm, you got to be at least 14 and you can't be doing any, like, crazy shit or a kid. That's fair. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) At the time, it was fair. By early 1929, Billy and her mother are now living in Harlem. Their landlady also runs a brothel. And Sadie begins her job as their sex worker. So Billy, not yet 14 years of age, actually ends up becoming a victim of sexual trafficking. Jesus Christ. So in May of 1929, the brothel slash house was raided, and both Billy and Sadie were sent to prison. At 14? Yeah. Sent to prison. Yeah. Just, you know, guilty by association type of thing. What the fuck, But it's though? also, like, an unfair time it's to be African-American. That's Christ. been forced apparently to a child. have sex with people. Sure. Right. So as if you haven't been through enough. Yeah. After her release, Billy, who is still a young teenager, starts singing in nightclubs in Harlem. She starts going by Billy Holiday when she performs with the neighbor, Kenneth. He plays tenor saxophone, and they're a duo from about 1929 till about 1931, 
They're playing at clubs, the Grey Dawn, Brooklyn Elks Club. It was just this time she wanted to connect to her father, Clarence, who was playing with Fletcher Henderson's band. Billy, she had no formal training, but clearly the music gene obviously runs in the family. <laughs> but what is like the irony for me here is like not seeing your father throughout your childhood because he wanted to be a musician. And then right. like you're at the same point as a young adult being a musician where he is. Yeah. It's just ironic. Yeah, I think she's definitely romanticizing with his lifestyle. I'm just oh, like, sure. look, We're notice a, me. Trying to get approval. Yeah, but she yeah. got to the same point where he was, and he'd been doing it way longer. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, dang. <laughs> also, for those of you who are wondering who Fletcher Henderson is, because that's just a name that I did not pull out of my ass, um, he's an American <laughs> pianist, a band leader, arranger, and composer, um, important in the development of big band jazz and swing music. So I guess he wasn't doing too poorly, but like for your daughter, who was, what, 14 at the time to catch up to you where you're playing? Mm-hmm. Crazy. So now it's the 1930s. You know, they brought into play the new government agency known as the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Motherfucker. With your boy, Henry Anslinger. Mm-hmm. Being Harry. The fr- Harry. <laughs> he was the first commissioner of the Bureau. He was, or Harry, was known for launching the first huge war on drugs, targeting mostly opioid and cannabis use. So he was also known for being extremely freaking racist and hating jazz music. Huh. Hmm, those are connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the internet sources, it is actually widely believed that this man would disproportionately target immigrants and people of cover, cover, <laughs> color during this drug war. Surprise. Also, there's, there's like a lot of evidence that he planted heroin in Harlem to ruin the Harlem Renaissance because these jazz musicians had such a, a cool, colorful booming mm. cultural mm-hmm. like movement happening mm-hmm. but they they actually planted a uh, heroin and made all these like a lot of people oh yeah addicted oh, in harlem i'm fucking sure to stop this from and happening. you know he was probably it, using the i hate jazz as a cover so people were like oh you just hate black people he's like no i just hate jazz yes, i'm sure right. yeah what a fucking and asshole. then like a few years later he's like oh yeah they're all drug addicts and he's the one that like inserted right what a fucking dick bag harry this boy racist dude i have proof I researched. It was a lot. But basically, one of the prime examples I found regarding this fact was that both Billie Holiday and Judy Garland suffered from addiction. Mm -hmm. Holiday used narcotics, heroin, cannabis, cocaine, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was involved in curbing rampant addiction. But Harry had a personal aversion to cannabis. So Holiday was used as the example targeted by the Bureau for her addiction, and Judy on the other hand, who was white and beloved by America, used prescription medication, amphetamines, and barb—I can't, barbiturates? <laughs> yeah, okay. barbiturates. So her possession of the pills was not considered technically illegal by your boy Harry, so they left her alone so she could maintain her perfect, clean image. So Judy Garland, that's from—she's the chick from Wizard of Oz. Yes. Right, so she's a white Lots girl. Lots of things. And she's—they're both, they're both doing drugs— but Judy's doing prescription drugs, which nowadays right. are um, considered, I would say, much worse than just smoking weed. Yeah, and absolutely. Like, that's what Billie Holiday was doing was smoking weed. But at the time, she was a black girl and she was smoking weed. And Judy Garland was a white girl well, and she had a prescription, but she was abusing yeah, it. Yeah, weed's not regulated by the government, whereas, you know, she's got health care and paying for prescriptions. And right. that's tax money. But he yeah. left Judy Garland alone. And that's absolutely. one of the big um, comparisons that's made is, and like how racist this guy was is that main thing because Judy had her issues, Billy had hers, right. but they only, they were targeting Billy. Yeah, so not only did they, you know, preserve Judy Garland's image of innocence, Harry 
found out about her addiction, and he had MGM Studios send Judy to a sanatorium, you know, a medical facility for long-term illness. Harry, he said, direct quote, I believed her to be a fine woman caught in a a situation that could only destroy her. Mm -hmm. And Garland was not persecuted for her drug use. Rude. That's fucked up. Like, that is the definition of a double standard. And that is so stupid. Yep. So, Holiday was actually first noticed by a producer in 1932, coincidentally doing a fill-in gig when another singer couldn't be there. So, like, right place, right time. Go Mm -hmm. ahead, girl. Uh, The producer signed her and set her up to record at age 18 with Benny Goodman. We like him. Um, Benny Goodman is actually an American jazz clarinetist and a band leader known as the King of Swing. So at 18, playing with him is hot shit. Mm -hmm. In the mid-1930s, Goodman led one of the most popular musical groups in the United States. He does the Chips Ahoy song. I love that. Um, Sing, sing, sing. Yeah. So they also used it in like Tower of Terror. Um, that Disney oh. movie. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, he's got some really good stuff. Yeah. So Holiday records two songs with Goodman, your mother's son-in-law. Um, and the other song was called Riff and the Scotch. The first sells 300 copies, but Riff and the Scotch is 5,000 copies. Damn. It was her first hit. Nice. Um, Hammond was impressed with her singing style and tells Billy that her singing almost changed his music taste and his musical life because she was the first, uh, the first girl singer he'd actually come across who sang like an improvisational jazz genius. Mm. He compares her to Louis Armstrong and says she's got a great sense of lyrical content for someone of her young age. She also used her voice like an instrument, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was so cool. It wasn't as as a literal thing. It was like like a like a a horn or something. Yeah. That's hard to do. So in 1935, Holiday actually made her big screen debut with a small role in Duke Ellington's nine and a half minute short musical film called Symphony in Black, A Rhapsody of Negro Life. Billy played a woman abused by her lover and sings a song called Saddest Tale, which was also known as Big City Blues, composed by Ellington. During her scene, she also continues to record more music, earning notoriety for her distinctive phrasing and expressive, often melancholy voice. Holiday was signed then to Brunswick Records by John Hammond and began recording with jazz pianist Teddy Wilson. So they get together, they record pop songs, but in the swing style... So kind of like how, orth- is it unorthodox jukebox? What is it called? Oh, postmodern jukebox. Um, <laughs> unorthodox jukebox. So it's like, what the fuck are you talking like about? Like postmodern. So they would like put Post their- jukebox, man? Okay. Postmodern jukebox. Oh. You've seen them on like YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So they were, you know, covering popular songs in the swing style. Since the duo were given artistic freedom to impro- improvise their material, Holiday actually really flourished with her vocals. She has a knack for her improvisational melody and being able to fit emotion into every note she sings, you know, it just made her soar to the top. The first recorded collaboration between Wilson and Holiday included What a Little Moonlight Can Do, which becomes Holiday's claim to fame. Um, if you're actually interested in hearing all these songs, like we talked about, playlist. We've got our playlist. Yeah, find it because we make one for, well, Cassie makes one for every single episode and it's pretty awesome. And it gives you a little bit of context for the people we're talking about yeah. and the work that they've done. The song, um, What a Little Moonlight Can Do, it was so successful, but the record label was not enjoying it. They wanted her to sound more like Cleo Brown, which was another famous jazz musician at the time. Luckily for Holiday, the record label decides that they're going to let her be considered as an artist in her own right. Good. <laughs> Which you should have been doing that all along. Yeah, to everybody. Um, after about a year, she begins, you, you know, being able to record under her own name. Good. And lucky for the label, once they gave her this freedom to be herself, 
Her releases from 1935 to 1938 became an asset for Brunswick. Um, as it turns out, the label was broke. Mm. So who are they to judge her songs? <laughs> yeah. Since there was no written arrangement for the albums that Holiday was recording to be recorded, she pumped out all these hits. Brunswick paid her a flat fee instead of royalties, and then they saved the company money by, what like— What the fuck? Yeah. So they, like, screwed her over, but, like— she bailed them out of their own, Right. Like, she made a whole bunch of hits because they finally let her do her thing, and then they just paid her a flat fee. That's... Yeah. That's fucked Well, up. they weren't charging her to use, like, the equipment, I guess, too, so... Mm. I don't know. This seems sketchy, then. Mm. What are you doing? Okay, so Holiday then meets tenor saxophonist Lester Young. And in 1937, she began touring with the Count Basie Orchestra for a brief time. Wow. Well. So in 1938, she hops on tour with Artie Shaw and his orchestra and is breaking new ground as she becomes the first female African-American vocalist to work with a white orchestra. That's huge, especially in 1938. Holy shit. It's huge, but it also obviously caused its problems. Must have sucked for her. It's probably like Jackie (laughs) Robinson playing in the fucking MLB. So promoters began to object Holiday for her race, her unique style of vocals. She wasn't, and she's like rightfully frustrated, you know. She Mm -hmm. leaves. She can't deal with all this, you know, added pressure. Bullshit. And bullshit, yeah. So she was no stranger to people treating her differently, but when you're singing in bands, you actually expect the members to help stick up for you. Right, you're in their band, they should have your back. Which they weren't doing. So there's a bit of a controversy at this point, obviously, because in an archived article from 1939, found on downbeat.com, Holiday sat down with a reporter for the full story. So she sits down with this reporter. She mentioned that singing in dance bands never really works out for her, that she had too many managers with Basie's orchestra. Yeah, with his orchestra. She was, you know, there was just too many people, too many guys behind the scenes telling everyone what to do, and it was like just chaos. So her and Count Basie got along just fine, but she was just kind of fed up with his micromanagement. Mm-hmm. When it came to working with Artie Shaw, she said it was a lot worse You know, they'd known each other for a long time, but his managers would complain about her constantly. And soon enough, she went from singing to a set of songs to only just, you know, two numbers a night. So can you imagine, you know, you're doing great, you're singing eight, ten songs, and they're like, actually, just go on and do two. What even is the point? That's all we need. Yeah, exactly. Why are you being brought around then? So when she wasn't singing, she was actually made to stay backstage, Mm -hmm. and she couldn't sit out in front with the rest of the band, which is like something special. That is... That is... Yes. Mm. Okay. Okay. It's a lot. So when they stayed at a hotel on tour, the hotel management made her use the back door, ride fright elevators instead of using the public ones. She was made to stay in her room when the rest of the band could just do whatever they wanted throughout the hotel. Or they could go out on the town, but they were like, no, you have to stay here. Because this was still during segregation. So they were making her follow these rules of segregation right. even though she was the star of the fucking show right which also kind of a downfall because shaw gets jealous you know she's going out she's doing all these songs and she slowly gets cut back on these songs mm-hmm. because she's getting everybody standing ovations for her and then yeah people are barely clapping for him so <laughs> he's jealous too right so, so everybody just up. started trying like oh let's just gang up on her and keep her down even though we asked her to be in our fucking orchestra and perform with us because she was good right And they're friends, like, messed mm. up. So as time goes on, it seems like Holiday is just simply better off doing things on her own, working for herself. Mm -hmm. So in September 1938, she releases a single, I'm Gonna Lock My Heart, and it ranked sixth as the most played song that month. Wow. Her record label listed the single as its fourth bestseller for the same month, pinking at number two on the pop charts. Hmm. Holiday starts using drugs early. It was the 1940s. She marries trombonist Jimmy Monroe on August 25th, 1941. 
And while still married, she becomes involved with trumpeter Joe Guy, who, spoiler, is her drug dealer. So Holiday begins recording for Columbia at the tail end of the 1930s. She's introduced to Strange Fruit, which is a song based on a poem about lynching, written by Abel Maripol. Sounds right. Sounds right. <laughs> Holiday performs it at Cafe Society in 1939. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Cafe Society is, it was a club created by um, Barney Josephson to showcase African-American talent and to be an American version of the political cabarets he had seen over in Europe. It was also known as the first racially integrated nightclub in the United States, located in Sheridan Square in Greenwich Village, ran from about 1938 to 1948. So it wasn't open in, what, 10 years before it got shut down? Yeah. Yeah. So when Holiday's producers at, at Columbia found the subject matter too sensitive, you know, the strange fruit, Milt Gabler agreed to record it for his Commodore Records. So in the episode Reefer Madness Part 2 of Conspiracy Theories, the podcast, they discussed Holiday's debut of her song Strange Fruit in 1939. Holiday received a threat from the FBN. That's a Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Yes, thank you. Uh, warning her not to sing the song again or she was going to be investigated for drug use. Sounds like a threat to me, Harry. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't so, even make sense. I mean, I guess they believed it, that it was a drug reference. I don't, I don't know. I looked into it, and it, the song's not even about drugs. No. She was told to keep quiet about racism in America, and she refused. So the racists who were hunting her down for drugs literally put an investigator on her to try and build up a case against her and uh, put her away for heroin use. Because mm. like, because she sang this song, whether it was about drugs or racism, they were like, no, 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 no. Target on your back now. Regardless, Strange Fruit remained in Holiday's repertoire for over 20 years, and although the release didn't get any airplay, it, it sold well, obviously. According to Holiday, Strange Fruit was her best-selling record, and it was the equivalent of a top 20 hit in the 1930s. The recording also helped her to gain more popularity. She was mentioned in Time magazine because of it. Like, that's a big deal at the, at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's a big deal at this time. Yeah. It's also a big fucking deal. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> so she didn't let this go to her head, though. She just kept, you know, kept her head down, kept recording. And by 1944, and still recording with the Commodore label, she pumped out I Cover the Waterfront, I'll Get By, and a song called He's Funny That Way. Um, she also recorded some new songs that were popular at the time, including My Old Flame and How Am I to Know. <laughs> so meanwhile, Billy's mom hops back into play. You know, she'd been out of the picture for a while, but she opened another restaurant called Mom Holidays, uh, using money that Holiday earned while playing dice with members of Count Basie's band. I mean, So shit. not only was she, like, outperforming them, but she was taking their money back She's making Farkle she money. She's making better because you know they weren't paying her appropriately. True, so take them, yeah. take their money. So Holiday was actually happy to keep her mom busy and happy, but it also kept her off of her back. She wasn't worried about her mom, but her mom also wasn't bothering her because she was kind of just yeah. giving her money. And it, I mean, if she was if she was giving her this like dice money, then she wasn't going to be resorting to prostitution for cash. But you can't like get rich off dice money, right? Well, it was for the restaurant. The restaurant, yeah. So eventually, what happened though? Sadie was borrowing tons of money for the restaurant, which Billy was happy to lend, but her mother would refuse to return the favor if Billy needed money. So she's like, hey, I gave uh, you all this money. Like, do you have something that I could use? And she's like, no. Mm. Yeah. So it's kind Thanks, of like, ma'am. 
you know, draining all the funds into a restaurant. Holiday, inspired by this argument where her mom would not give her money back, writes, God bless the child, and the song reaches 25 on the charts in 1941. It was the third, or it was third in Billboard's Song of the Year, and it sold over a million records. It was later added to the Grammys Hall of Fame in 1976. So, ironically enough, her mother did help her get paid. Hmm. So, I don't think she can be that. Roundabout. Right, yeah. It comes full circle. Billy signed to DECA in 1944 at just the age of 29, and her single, Lover Man, skyrocketed her into success. She began performing solo concerts, which was rare for jazz artists. You know, mm-hmm. they'd always have a band behind yeah. them or just other people playing the stage. Wait, it was just her it by was just herself? Her. Or it was just her and her band? She's a badass. It was just her. Or it could have, maybe they mean like it was just her and like not nobody open no for openers. Her. Yeah. Right. No people were head. coming just to see her and whatever. I mean, because they had to have like a band playing music, but it wasn't like Count Basie was featuring yeah. Billie Holiday. Yeah, it was like, it was Billie Holiday. So in September 1946, Holiday began her first film project, New Orleans, in which she starred opposite of Louis yeah. Armstrong and Woody Herman. With Holiday recording The Blues Are Brewin' for the film's soundtrack. With racism and McCarthyism in full swing. Side note. McCarthyism is the practice of making accusations of subversion or treason without proper regard for evidence. So that term is referring to the U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy... And it had its origins in the period of the United States known as the Second Red Scare, and that lasted from the 1940s through the 1950s. So McCarthyism is just, like, accusing people of, like, sabotaging the government. It's like a later version of the witch trials, but not witches, (laughs) communists. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so with racism and McCarthyism in full swing, the film's producer and the scriptwriter were pressed to lessen holidays and Armstrong's roles in order to avoid... The impression that black people created jazz. What? Side note, they did. (laughs) What? Okay. So the attempts to lessen their involvement actually failed because in 1947, the film's scriptwriter, Herbert Bieberman, uh, was blacklisted and sent to jail. Was He he was blacklisted because he said black people started jazz? Um, I think it was for a different reason, but he he just ended up going to jail. So it was just a big flop. Yeah. That sucks. But— Holiday's drug addictions became more apparent on the set of this movie. They continued to worsen. Billy actually earned more than $1,000 per week from club ventures, but spent most of it on heroin. Mm. Um, her lover, Joe Guy, the that's trombonerist. The Trump- no, I think that's the trumpet guy. Trumpeter I think the bonus. boner was her hubby. Okay. Um, <laughs> he traveled to Hollywood while Holiday was filming, and he just supplies her with drugs, whatever she wanted. So when Holiday's manager catches wind of Joe on set, he actually banned him Mm. because he knew what was going on. He was just trying to help her. Now, by 1947, Holiday is at her peak. She just divorced her husband, James Monroe. She also ended up calling it off with Joe Guy because she was hoping to get clean. Yeah. She's making hundreds of thousands of dollars, ranking high in the music polls, getting featured in magazines. She's basically on top of the world. After being stopped by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics for years— they're actually finally able to pin drug charges on Holiday. With the help of her fuckhead manager and future husband, Louis McKay. Ugh. Just want to know. That guy ratted her out. For what? For when drugs. He, no, like, he actually what tipped did he off. Get in return? He tipped off the FBI and just, I don't know what he got in return, but he, he was the rat. And then he ended up marrying her in the future. How the she fuck? Did, she didn't even She married know. the narc? Did she know? I don't think she knew. She didn't even know. On May 16th, Holiday was arrested for possession of narcotics in her New York apartment. 
She arrived in court on May 27th, just a few weeks after the arrest, and her court session was titled The United States of America versus Billie Holiday, which is kind of freaking harsh. Like, the whole U.S. Like, meanwhile, her lawyer wouldn't show at trial to represent her. That's his job. Yeah. Um, Holiday didn't feel like anyone was actually on her side, so she pled guilty, and the drug possession conviction caused her to lose her New York City cabaret card, Aww. preventing her from working anywhere that sold alcohol. Ew, so what, Chuck E. Cheese? Every venue <laughs> on the planet. Yeah, any nightclub that she could sing in, that she was singing in. So, or just even venues that would sell alcohol, I guess. So, Holiday spent less than a year in jail, but was still being targeted by the FBN. Her manager planned a comeback concert for Billy at Carnegie Hall, which, much to Billy's surprise, was actually wildly successful. Um, in fact, it was sold out, which was 2,700 tickets sold in advance, um, which was record-breaking for Carnegie Hall wow. at the time. Um, the successes continued. She ran a sold-out three-week show on Broadway. Although her shows were successful, she wasn't doing well on the radio, most likely because of her new reputation as a drug addict. Still with no cabaret card, Holiday's earnings were reduced. Her records went out of print in 1950, and she didn't receive any royalties from her songs very often. In 1958, her royalties earned her just $11. What the fuck? <laughs> so she was desperate for cash. Her mom's not giving her any money. Holiday plays the Ebony Club illegally without her cabaret card. Uh, her manager encouraged her to perform, but she was actually scared the whole time she was going to get arrested. But she wasn't. Mm. At this point, it's 1950. Her drug abuse and drinking are prevalent and causing her to pretty much deteriorate. She appeared on the ABC reality series, The Comeback Story, to discuss her own attempts to overcome her current misfortunes. So The Comeback Story was actually a reality TV series, which was kind of crazy that they still had reality TV in 1953. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Holiday's interview with the show can be found pretty easily online. It was pretty interesting to watch. I don't know. It was sad. Yeah. You know, she's talking about what happened, and they're just kind of like, you know, that sad puppy commercial, like, adopt a dog or they'll die. There's no actual it her, retribution. Yeah. It's no. just uh, You're like, maybe America story. will feel bad for you, and then you'll get... More money. I, I don't mean, know. ideally. Right. But it's on YouTube. Holiday's music began reflecting the effects of her declining health. In 1956, her ghost-written autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, came out. They used different conversations and interview snippets to tell her story, but a lot of people didn't believe it was actually an accurate account of her life. If she had been honest, there may have been legal repercussions. Oh, okay. So it was God, probably watered not... down. Yeah, it had to be. Yeah, because, I mean, well, she had a target on her back. So it's not naming she... the people that were giving her drugs. Yeah. If so. she had said something, then, like, yeah, I'm sure they would have used that as evidence against her. Yeah. It would be nice to know her actual story. So on March 9th, or March 28th, 1957, Holiday marries the rat, Louis McKay. Um, her sometimes manager, pimp, and mob enforcer. But um, I had to Google mobster versus enforcer. And let me tell you that an enforcer is a member or associate of a crime family or criminal organization that specializes in handling those who do not get along with the organization, rules, policies, deals, all that. Enforcement often involves threats and actions, violent beatings, murder, you know what that means. Uh, just like all the other men in her life, he was abusive. Yeah, and this McKay guy is the dude who helped rat her out the first time. Mm. Billy was being hunted by the anti-drug squad. Anslinger, Harry Anslinger from the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics had another man, George White, track her and the two busted her in a warrantless raid of her apartment. Oh, uh. Wow, Typical. crazy that shit still goes on today. What year is it? 
Yeah. Um, so George had a history of planting drugs on people, and he would actually invite women back to his apartment and spike their drinks with LSD to see what would happen. Oh, my God. act. Yeah. Though Billy told the men uh, she had been clean for a year, they found paraphernalia in her wastebasket and uh. took her back to court on drug charges. So they basically planted shit on her and took her to court. Um, the trial found her not guilty, thankfully. So Anslinger okay. got his revenge the moment Billy's health took a sharp decline, which landed her in the hospital. Mm. So in 1959, Holiday was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver, and she had to stop drinking because of her doctor's orders. It wasn't too long, though, before she relapsed, and by May of 1959, she had lost 20 pounds. And those people surrounding her, along with her manager, attempted to persuade Holiday to go to the hospital. Sure. Finally, she collapsed while eating, and she was rushed in. They just wrote her off as being a drug addict and they sat her in the fucking hallway on a stretcher for a full hour or over an hour until somebody actually recognized her yeah. and they gave her a room. Billy had multiple issues, not just cirrhosis of the liver from drinking, but she was also emaciated from not eating. She had cardiorespiratory problems from smoking. She had ulcers in her leg from heroin tracks. Billy was quoted saying, you watch, baby, they're going to arrest me in this damn bed. And then they did. Ugh. The next part of the story is really tragic. Again, the officers framed Billy for a second time. They claimed that they found less than an eighth of an ounce of heroin hanging on a nail on the wall, which was far out of reach from her bed. Um, unless she would disclose her dealer, they said they would take her straight to prison after she was well enough to leave the hospital. They confiscated all of her belongings and handcuffed her to her bed, and she was no longer allowed any visitors. What would nailing heroin to the wall do? Like, what the fuck? Even, <laughs> how did she do that? She was- Why in, would her dealer do that? They she, fucking did that shit because they wanted to torture. It's like somebody that's putting too much detail into the lie to make it sound believable. Yeah. But it's just, it's too much information and it sounds like a lie. She wouldn't have been able <laughs> to like, reach it. If the hospital had seen that she nailed heroin to the wall, they probably would have fucking taken it. I mean- they meant her hospital bed? It was like hanging on like a hook, I think. Across the Maybe wall in like a bag or something. Bed. Oh, I thought it, they like, that's where they said they also found more at home. I didn't realize you were talking okay, about at the, the hospital. So those were two separate occasions. There was okay. one time where they framed her at her, uh, she was in like a hotel room or something and they came into the hotel room and she had been clean at that point. Right. They okay. planted drugs on her. Put and in so the this basket. time they planted drugs on her again in the in hospital. The hospital. Okay. And they said that it was hanging on the wall. So I'm assuming maybe like in a purse or something. Um, it was hanging on a hook. Either way, like it didn't it just didn't make any fucking sense. No. She was no longer allowed any visitors. She was forced to go through heroin withdrawals alone mm -hmm. on top of her other diseases that she was dealing with. Her friends were trying to like urge the doctor to give her methadone, which he was able to get to her for 10 days. So she did appear to be doing better and putting on weight, but soon she was cut off. Protesters started gathering outside of the hospital. A local rehab center was pleading with investigators to let her recover at the center because she's a fucking drug addict. She needs treatment. She doesn't need punishment. Yeah. Like, like, what are you trying to accomplish? But the hospital and the, the investigators refused. Billy had her fingerprints and mugshots taken from the bed where they also chose to interrogate her and also denied her a lawyer. How's that legal? The fuck? It's not. It's literally not. Mm. It's fucked up. Um, Billy said that she would rather die than go back to prison. 
And on July 17th at 3.10 a.m., she succumbed to her condition. She was only 44 years old. During the final years of her life, Holiday was swindled out of most of her earnings. She died with literally 70 cents in her bank account. Her funeral mass was held on July 21st of 1959 at the Church of St. Paul the Apostle in Manhattan with swarms of police in attendance fearing riots. Mm. Um, most people would assume that Holiday is buried in New York's Woodlawn Cemetery along with other jazz legends like Duke Ellington and Miles Davis. Turns out she was actually buried way out in the Bronx, likely because it was cheap. The stories say that when she died, she was found with $750 cash on her. That was her life savings, and it was strapped to her leg. Her husband took her money, and he didn't even pay for her funeral. A fucking fan had to pay for it. <sighs> this is, it's so upsetting. Um, he decided to bury Billy in the plot next to her mother without a headstone. Her grave was unmarked until a magazine downbeat crowdfunded her headstone. Wow. Yeah. Gilbert Milstein, whoever that is, probably the guy from the magazine, <laughs> wrote. I think so. He wrote, Billie Holiday died in the Metropolitan Hospital, New York, on Friday, July 17th, 1959, in the bed in which she had been arrested for illegal possession of narcotics a little more than a month before, as she lay mortally ill. In the room from which a police guard had been removed by court order only a few hours before her death, which, like her life, was disorderly and pitiful. She had been strikingly beautiful, but was wasted physically to a small, grotesque caricature of herself. The worms of every kind of excess, drugs were only one, had eaten her. The likelihood exists that among the last thoughts of the cynical, sentimental, profane, generous, and greatly talented woman of 44 was the belief that she was to be arraigned the following morning. She would have been eventually, although possibly not that quickly. In any case, she removed herself finally from the jurisdiction of any court here below. So when Holiday died, the New York Times published a short obituary, just two sentences, on page 15 without any type of byline. Mm. Media coverage of Holiday's death focused heavily on her addiction and difficult childhood instead of her numerous contributions to the jazz of genre. Of course they yeah. did. Yeah, of course they did. Just belittle her to her shortcomings. What right. you think? Um, a publication, The Desert Sun, noted that Holiday simply neglected her health, and that's what caused her to pass. Oh. So it's 2020 now, and, well, it's 2021 now. Uh, addiction is still prevalent with resources, you know, for help, but can you imagine all the help they had in the 50s? I mean, they had that one, you said there was actually a, a rehab center begging. Yeah. You know, There why? was at least you one. You handcuff her in the fucking rehab center. Yeah. I it's mean, not like she's going to go anywhere. They're not going to let her. It. Yeah, so but they didn't, they didn't care about her getting better. They cared about her getting put away. They obviously wanted her dead. Yeah. 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 Mm. So, unfortunately, Holiday was demonized for her, her addiction, and her death was marked with blame for it. Not only was she targeted as an example, but she wasn't even offered help to overcome her addiction. Now, Holiday's estate was left with $1,000— her best recordings from the 30s were mostly out of print, but in the following years, her notoriety continued to grow. So they actually released, you know, what I talked about earlier, a movie portrait of Lady Sings the Blues. And in 1972, Diana Ross, who played Holiday in the film, was nominated for an Oscar for her performance and actually won herself a Golden Globe. Hmm. Um, in 1985, a statue of Billie Holiday was erected in Baltimore. The statue was completed in 1993 with additional panels of images inspired by her song strange fruit 
there's going to actually be a biograph- or biographical drama titled uh, The United States versus Billie Holiday, starring mm. singer Andra Day, portraying Holiday, set to release in 2020, which oh, well, didn't cool. happen. But Lee Daniels, who is an award-winning filmmaker, is hoping to shine a light on systemic racism and social injustice that is centuries old. Honestly, a perfect time right now for yeah. this movie. Yeah, seriously. Absolutely. So. I mean, it really sucks that it didn't come out in 2020. I'd be, I know yeah. we, we, we wrote this up um, <laughs> a while ago, like a few months ago, but a lot of production was stopped right. on all TV and, and film stuff because of the pandemic. So hopefully this is something that is still in the works. It might be, yeah. but um, we'd we'll have, have to, to follow up with that. Yeah. Yeah. So Holiday is actually posthumous, posthumously, humulus, post, humulus, posthumous, post, fuck. See, posthumous, post, Drew, posthumous, posthumously. No, posthumously. After her death. Posthumously. Okay, so. After her death, Holiday was nominated for 23 Grammy Awards and eventually in 2000 wow. inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Along with, you know, winning many more awards and Hall of Fame inductions, it seems that we can all agree that we lost Holiday way too soon with her addiction struggles. So she's such an important artist, even now, breaking barriers and paving the way for other musicians to let their voices be heard. That's oh. it. That's Thanks, the Billy. Story of Billy Holiday. This one was like a really important one to do because it just shows like double standards and injustices. And she was a fucking musician. She was an entertainer. And how many fucking musicians, especially how many are we going to talk about on this show that were addicted to drugs yeah and how many of them had the same shit happen that she did none of them it was completely unfair to make her die alone in a hospital while she was going through withdrawals like fucking treat her and by the way war on drugs is bullshit it's fucking bullshit People need treatment and they need help and they need resources they don't need to be punished for being addicted to drugs it's not fair it's not right it's not moral. You should, if anybody who plants drugs on somebody because they have nothing better to do, like, go fuck yourself. Because you're a racist, bigot, asshole. Yeah. So her story was super, super tragic. I just can't imagine, like, already having a tough childhood and then even having success and still being shit upon. Yep. Um, you can't go and enjoy your time. And you can't even watch the show from the front. You have to sit in the back. Mm-hmm. But everybody else can. Um, you can't. you sang on the stage. Yeah, you're the yeah. performer that people are coming to see. You're selling out shows, but you can't leave your hotel room like everybody else in the band. You have to stay in there by yourself yeah. because you're black. What? Yeah, it's fucked up. Let's change it, everyone. Luckily, I think a, like a lot of things have changed since then, but not enough things. Like there's still more work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Oh man, injustice is like so so vast still. It's yeah, just, like the saddest part of the story is the the fucking Harry Anslinger's like they won, you know? Yeah, and they're continuing to fucking win. I mean, they're more exposed every day as we grow as a society as we try to progress. Yeah. But we're still hold back by those fucking bigots, you mm-hmm. know, every day. And it sucks it's 2020 and we're still dealing with this kind of shit. Do but I we can all it? learn from her story and I can't <laughs> wait to see the Billie Holiday movie. Yeah. I think we're going to relate to it 
for what's going on right now. You know, I think it's it's really interesting and fun and exciting that a lot of, well, a handful of the people that we've been talking about have movies on the way. So Which, a bunch of the people were covering this season and we didn't like know any of this. We just kind yeah. of picked some people. Who were we working on? And I was like, oh no, Netflix just released a documentary. They're going to think we just watched that and then tried to do a Buddy podcast. Holly, I think. It was, was Buddy it? Holly? Or... Okay, I don't remember, but I was like, oh no. We haven't watched anything. We've just done research. We got it. the recording date stamps, Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> don't fuck with us. No, I think, um, I think Buddy Holly... Has something coming out, and then um, the Billy Holiday one, and then there's, uh, I think, an Elvis thing that's coming out soon. Probably. Bonham would be great. I would love that. That would be so cool. I really want them to do like a Led Zeppelin. They need to do more on drummers. Like, there's no fucking good movie about drummers. You know, you get people that are. You know, our age or even younger that are like still like, oh, Bonham's the best. You don't, what do you have out of the early 2000s? Travis Barker? Travis Barker's up mm-hmm. there. I mean, you have like a lot of the progressive rock, uh, you know, Neil Peart's the best drummer ever. If you're into metal, then, you know, Vinnie Paul's the best drummer ever. Mm-hmm. Um, he's one of them. Or uh, like modern day drummers. Modern day drummers. The guy from Gojira. He's really fucking good. I mean, it's just, it's so vast. But who is he? (laughs) What's his name? We don't know. I know his name. What's his name? Fuck. Marcus. uh, Is it Marcus? Aurelius. Something French. Anyways, if you're looking for current modern day drummers that are really fucking good, look up Gojira. Well, um, thank you guys so much for listening today. And make sure you definitely go check out the playlist that Cassie has built. You it's can listen fun. to a bunch of music from Billie Holiday and oh, some absolutely. of the other artists that we mentioned on the podcast today. Basie, uh, Shaw, I think. I focus more on jazz. Duke Ellington? Yeah. So check that out. And then uh, make sure that you guys are rating our podcast that's super helpful i think you can do that on like itunes and wherever you're listening to your podcasts if it gives you the ability to rate it that would be awesome because it means that other people can find our podcast which is our ultimate goal yeah we want to talk to we we want friends yeah that's the ultimate and even if you're like i'm not gonna rate that shit i don't have time maybe you have time to like mention it to one of your friends that might enjoy it that'd be really cool yeah. Or if there's information that we don't know that you do know, maybe you could share that and we'll mention it. Yeah. Uh, and if okay. um, your sister did something that's really like oh stupid, God. then write us an email for the Your Sister's House podcast that we might be considering. Um, nothing against sisters or women. Yeah, I don't want anyone to think that we're like it's trying to women bash because we're not. It's just like a familial sister bashing thing. Like, so if your brother sucks too, like fucking tell me. Maybe we should do like a Your Siblings Suck. Yeah, or, like your siblings. My because sister I don't sucks. <laughs> I got a tattoo. It was secret. My mom didn't know. And then when my sister got in an argument with my mom and threw me under the bus and said, at least I'm not, the, the, you know, the child with the tattoo. Oh, my God. And my mom disowned me for like three months. She wouldn't speak to me. Oh. It was terrifying. That happened to you? Yeah, my sister did that to me. I called her. She didn't talk. She was like, hello. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, you're going to want to talk to your father. And just for three months, just cold, like oh ice cold. God. You're not her daughter anymore. No, yeah. So, you know, I, I had called my dad. Oh. I was like crying because I was like, it's a freaking tattoo. It didn't matter, you know. It, it shouldn't just, matter. It shouldn't. My mom was pretty bummed when I got mine too. Yeah. She was like, I just don't know why you have to ruin yourself. I'm like, I'm not ruining myself. Yeah, I'm making myself better. better. So what's crazy is my sister actually now has more tattoos than me. Huh. So. My sister actually 
like did a solid and defended me when I got my first tattoo. Because um, oh. obviously, like, I wasn't going to tell my mom about it because she hates them so much. And I have two siblings, and at the time, none of us had any tattoos. My mom always told us how much she hated them. But I don't, and yeah. I wanted one. And we had a friend who was a tattoo artist, or starting to be, mm-hmm. and she had some really cool art. So I was like, hey, I would love to get a piece by you. And I did, and I did not tell her, and I hid it from her on Facebook and, like, Instagram. I made sure she couldn't see the post. Mm -hmm. Um, But then one of my cousins, I think, said something to my mom about it, and she started losing her shit. And my sister actually (laughs) talked to her on the phone and defended me. I mean, the first one I got was on my back, so it's like, I got— I couldn't even see it myself. Like, I forget right. it's there now, but it's like, I can't even see it. What's the point of you getting mad about being able to see it? That's like, your death cap one, right? Yeah. I like when they're like, I don't like tattoos, but I would have done it a little different. You know? No. It's like, no. fuck you. My, my dad was like, you know, it's okay, Drew, but it's a little busy, don't you think? <laughs> it's not I'm done. Like, I'm like, it's, it's all working the on The art it. critic. He's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would have done something a little different. That's I'm like, so well, you go funny. get a fucking sleeve. Yeah. And then I'll judge your sleeve. Yeah. And we can judge each other's sleeves. Where it's like, <laughs> what's the point? Speaking of sleeves, I think it's time to leave. <laughs> well, I don't know how we got here, but here we are. Um, anyways, <laughs> follow us on our shit. Death by podcast team. Get some t-shirts, get some stickers. That's assuming we have t-shirts and stickers, which maybe we do at this point in time. Comment, like, share, spread the word. You nerds. Spread it. Follow us. Bye. And also, rest in peace. Scissor my timbers. Don't scissor Drew's timbers. Just (laughs) rest in peace. Perform some painting. Scissor my timbers. (laughs) Later, nerds. Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Mastering by Adam Dobb. Graphic arts by Mike Johnson. Writing by Alex Motler and Cassie Gardner. With assistance from Drew Orton.